Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large Kara Swisher and NYU business professor Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Kara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Recently, we got some big news. Robert Mueller, despite saying he did not want to, is going to testify in front of Congress about his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and into possible obstruction by President Donald Trump. When that happens, it's going to be a media circus. Which made me think, what's it like to cover a story like that? How does it work? What is the news behind the news? To talk about this, we are incredibly fortunate to have with us Laura Jarrett, one of my favorite people of all time. Laura covers legal affairs for CNN, and she has the dubious distinction of having joined CNN at exactly the moment when the Trump administration exploded into the headlines. Laura, you're either the smartest person in the world or the unluckiest in terms of when you started your job. It's not boring. (laughs) It's not boring. Before Laura joined CNN, she was a practicing attorney in Chicago in private practice, doing all sorts of high-powered litigation, not the sort of person who usually turns into a journalist. And before that, she was a law student at Harvard Law School, where I had the great pleasure of meeting her, and she was the standout student in a course I taught way back when, when Barack Obama was just running for president with John Jackson uh, of the University of Pennsylvania, who's now the dean at the Annenberg School at the University of of Pennsylvania. And um, I've been following her career with tremendous and totally undeserved pride. And I'm thrilled that you could join us. Thank you, Laura, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So start at the beginning. You're sitting in your law firm. You're earning your big law firm salary. (laughs) You're a mover and shaker in Chicago. Why turn to journalism? Uh, Other than the fact that I had a killer shoe collection, (laughs) I was miserable. And I think part of the issue is, you know, unless you have a legal background or you have parents that are at law firms, a lot of people don't realize that much of the day is spent on phone calls and in meetings planning for different eventualities, but not actually digging into the substance of the law. And so when, by the time I left, I was a six-year associate. And what that means is I'm basically managing other associates. <laughs> but it also meant you were on the cusp of partnership. I mean, making it to the sixth year, usually people go for the go for the gold. Sure. But that uh, requires seeing somebody's life uh, who is serving as a partner and thinking, oh, you know what? If I just work a couple more years, work really hard, put my head down, that's the life I can have. And there was nobody for which I could point to and say, that's what I want. So why journalism and why not going off to become a ski bum? Because I knew that I still loved the law and I knew that I still loved um, digging into 
legal issues, but I didn't want to be an advocate anymore. I didn't uh, like the idea of having to just take a position, whole hog, no matter whether I thought it was right or dumb. I was loathed to go in every day knowing that this is what they're paying me to do. So <laughs> whether I think they're wrong or right, I'm supposed to argue for it. And you're penalized if you're not as aggressive as possible about it. And I wanted to just dig in on the facts. And so I tried to think, well, what can I do where I can cover the facts? I can cover legal issues, but do it in a far more fulfilling and interesting way. Turns out local news in Chicago is very competitive. <laughs> they really want you to have, you know, gone through the ranks of other local markets. And it turns out, more sort of nationwide networks, especially cable, are far more flexible about taking someone with an unorthodox background. That's actually fascinating. I, I would have had no idea about that. And I was going to, my next question was actually going to be, how does someone who's a great lawyer with an impeccable legal pedigree, but has never actually stood in front of a camera and explained things to people before, suddenly end up on air at CNN? So part of... Um, why CNN ends up being such a great fit for me, especially coming directly from Latham and Watkins, having never been on air once in my life, um, is because it's on all day long. So they, <laughs> they, they need people, they need people on all day long. And they're so much more willing to take a chance on you. And it was really CNN that came up with this idea of, well, you have the legal background. Why don't we leverage that? Why don't you cover the Justice Department? And again, remember, this is the summer of 2016. So the Justice Department that they envisioned for me uh, was, I would say, the pace was going to be slightly different. And they thought, well, you know. <laughs> so in your, in, your account, <laughs> in your account, Laura, they hired you because they had nothing to lose. Because if you weren't good at 4 a.m., they just would never put you on, you know, at 9 p.m. And they exactly. gave you the very boring beat of the Hillary Clinton Justice Department <laughs> where nothing especially exactly. would happen and antitrust laws wouldn't be strictly enforced and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We, we'd be dealing with, you know, the 12th Benghazi hearing and congressional document fights about stuff like that. So you took a boring job and you got an interesting one. I knew it would be interesting. I just didn't know that it was going to be like this, shall we say? Yeah. I knew, I knew it was going to be great and I knew it was going to be the right move for me. And it was certainly going to be far more fulfilling um, than managing document review for large corporate litigation. I had no idea it was going to be like this. And it has turned out, um, I think, to be, you know, such an, a memorable and incredible experience for me to have as my first uh, formative uh, job in journalism. So tell me about what it's actually like on a daily basis. I mean, to those of us who are, I would say, at the periphery of, of the media like me, I write a column, but I'm not, you know, I don't have to respond in every in every live moment. Sometimes Trump's legal news seems like drinking from a fire hose. You know, every morning we wake up, we turn on CNN or we open the newspaper and we hear the latest story of what's happened. But that means that if we're doing that, You've already been up for hours before us. You've already assimilated what's happened and you've already presented it as a as a story. So how do you usually first hear that the president has done something or that the Department of Justice has done something? What's your usual? Do you usually know about it before it even happens? So it kind of depends on what the issue is. Uh, a perfect example of where, unfortunately, we had no heads up was when the special counsel decided to break his silence <laughs> after two years of stoicism. That day, uh, 
walked into the Justice Department at 9 a.m., got some coffee, sat down, was just sort of casually going through my emails. And what do we get is a a media alert (laughs) from the special counsel's office that he's actually going to speak in an hour and a half. And the challenge of something like that is immediately everyone turns to you with, well, what is he going to say? And is that does that mean that the people within CNN call you? They say, well, you're on the Department of Justice beat. We need to be prepared for when he speaks in an hour and a half. So we expect that you will already know what's going to happen before it's happened. That's what they're saying to you? Absolutely. Go find out exactly what he's going to say. And then not only go out and find out what he's going to say, but get on TV right now and talk talk about it. And tell us. So (laughs) first first find out and then tell us about it. But actually, you want to we want to do that in reverse order. But really, maybe simultaneously, maybe, maybe, maybe that. And that's that is, again, one of the challenges with how fast everything is moving right now is while you are on trying to report about what you just found out about it's, there's still incoming. So why did you, how did you do it? I mean, tell us concretely, what did you do? It's 90 minutes, you get the email, suddenly you you go into action. What did you do for the next 90 minutes? So for the next 90 minutes, I was literally running all over the building, or I should say waddling because I'm eight and a half months pregnant. (laughs) Just to raise the degree of difficulty. We don't want to make this too easy (laughs) for you. (laughs) Waddling all over the halls of justice. Um, knocking on doors to whomever I thought would be best positioned to know about what exactly he's going to say. And the challenge with someone like Mueller is that group is very uh, (laughs) tight-lipped, to say the least. And so it's probably not that surprising that we didn't even know he was going to speak that Mm -hmm. day um, because they don't, you know, front load things with the press. They just, they don't operate like that. And so I waddled around justice and then I made as many phone calls as possible while doing live hits saying, I don't know what he's going to say, but it should be interesting. And did you, did you engage in any pre-analysis? I mean, I, I will say I um, watched the thing live on CNN yep. and then I muted it to start writing my own column explaining what I thought had happened. And then when I saw you come on the screen, which was about 90 seconds later, then I unmuted it and to listen to, listen to you. I appreciate but did, that. But I didn't hear you before, <laughs> before the event. So did you do any pre-analysis? Uh, I did. And what I tried to do there, because I don't think it serves the viewer to do like too much speculation about what he will say, unless I've been told he's going to say X. Right. So I was told it was going to be substantive. I was told um, that he had spoken with the attorney general before about this and that the attorney general wasn't blindsided by that. So those types of nuggets, um, you know, we have now an hour and a half of air to fill. So that's helpful yep. uh, to give the viewers sort of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on that. But in terms of, you know, actually predicting the words that are going to come out of his mouth, I don't I don't see any value in doing that unless I had gotten a copy of the remarks myself, which I hadn't. But I did try to give our audience a bit of a frame to understand why it mattered that he was speaking. And I think that that's what we try to do in all of these things, because most people aren't following the minutia of this as you know, closely as all of us are sometimes in the media. And so I try my hardest to pull back and, and think like if someone is just tuning in right now and they haven't, you know, been following every last indictment, but they know who Robert Mueller is vaguely and they see his face and they see B-roll of him on our air every day. Yeah. That's all there is of Mueller's B-roll. There's no A-roll. Right. So how should, why should it matter to the average person that he's decided today is the day he wants to open his mouth? So now he speaks. Now he gets up there. He says his piece. He says he won't take questions. And you know you have 
at most a couple of minutes before you have to go on and offer an authoritative analysis. I noticed that CNN first went to a panel of people yeah. who kind of free associated, no offense to them, they're doing their best, um, but they were kind of free associating. Right. And then you came on and actually said something. I, again, so no part offense of to that, the others. Part of the dance there is is logistics, right? So the the press conference happens on the seventh floor of the Justice Department. I then have to waddle back down <laughs> to the first floor where mm-hmm. my booth or slash closet is mm-hmm. and, you know, get mic'd up, get everything on so that I can be back on air. So there has to be a little bit of a, well, who's going to sort of fill the time until we can get the reporters and correspondents back on. And so a lot of times if you see panels, um, even on the day when the report was released, you'll notice when it first gets released, there is a panel of probably eight or 10 people on set talking about it. But before Evan Perez, who's my colleague who also covers the Justice Department, and I could get back to our positions to come on and talk about what the report actually says, because it just there just has to be something to fill the time until we can get in position. That's amazing. You know, in my fantasy, I somehow thought they were giving you a minute or two to actually think about what you were going to say. But of course, that's <laughs> totally wrong. They, they were just giving you time to walk down the stairs I'm or get in the crowded elevator. That. Or... I'm supposed to have done that while I was walking or brushing my teeth this morning. <laughs> My goodness. So then how do you how do you do it? I mean, maybe it's too hard to explain. Maybe that's like, you know, asking Michael Jordan, how does he make the move under the basket? But in in reality, you have to assimilate a lot of information extremely quickly and provide not only a summary of it that's accurate, which is relevant in the Mueller context, because we've learned that not all summaries are accurate. Yes. And also an analysis so that the very first thing the listener or the viewer sees or hears is Laura explaining what just happened and Laura also saying what it meant. And that's really different. We should just point out than traditional journalism in which there were really two different jobs. One job was tell us what happened. And that was the fast and immediate job. And the other job was tell us what it means. And you have a little more time to do that part of it. So how do you how did you do that? I mean, what do you do on a regular basis when you know you have to analyze as well as describe? Well, you know, part of the benefit is that because I just get to cover one beat, I spend an enormous amount of time thinking about this stuff all day long. And it kind of helps if you sort of marinated over it for a long period of time. I think it gives you a little bit more context. It gives you a little bit more flavor of what's happening. And so it's not like you're just sort of just dropped in cold without having any sort of uh, heads or tails of what's going on. And for the times when um, it's about doing both, as you said, what happened and the analysis, I actually like that better because the what happened, people can now find out, you know, in so many different ways. And so I hope part of the reason that they would tune in is for our analysis of how to make sense of it, how to how to see it in the larger context, how to understand why it matters. I think that that's, you know, hopefully what would differentiate uh, myself from, you know, another justice reporter on the beat. That, that should be sort of what we're offering as a brand. Can I ask about that, in fact? Yeah. Because one of the things that, that strikes me is actually there is almost no way anymore to find any source of news that would just tell you what happened without already hearing the analysis, at least if you want it Mm. in real time. And here's what I mean. Nobody waits till the next morning to read the news story anymore. In fact, if I want to know what's happening right now, I'm going to turn on a cable news network. And, you know, I've got you guys, I've got MSNBC, I've got Fox News. All three will show Mueller live 
And then instantaneously, all three will give you description plus analysis. And in many cases, that will be the most important way that anyone can, can get that information. I mean, there's no, yeah. there isn't a network, a cable network that just says, we just tell you what happened and we don't analyze it. And one of the results of that, and this is actually something that worries me, is that we get the news already analyzed. It already comes out analyzed. And if you watched Fox, which I then turned to, you've of course heard radically different analysis yeah. than you heard on CNN or MSNBC. And that's true of every breaking story nowadays. And I, and I do share that concern, um, especially when, you know, this stuff is not always straightforward. It's, it sometimes actually requires a beat to sort of process it and think about it. And a good example, I think, is the day that the attorney general, Bill Barr, released his four-page memo on what he took away to be Mueller's principal conclusions. And in subsequent days and weeks and everything that's followed, I think there's been a more fulsome understanding of what happened there. But in the first I would say 30 minutes of that memo coming out, if you look at the coverage, the coverage is the special counsel has cleared the president of uh, conspiracy, or as he likes to say, collusion. The analysis that Mueller gives is far, <laughs> far, far from, from that. that. But because we were so, so quick and so lightning speed trying to get on the takeaway and I think trying to be actually as fair as possible to Trump, which I know <laughs> many people may not think that that's what this was, but it actually, I think, was an attempt to say, you know, for two and a half years, the president's been under this cloud. If the special counsel has cleared him, we have to say that right away. And so I think there was actually a jump to do that um, without taking a second to really process what Mueller was saying. And that, I think, is an example of the danger of this. But aren't you being a little hard, a little too hard on yourself? I mean, you're leaving out in your, your description just now, you're being so neutral, you left out the fact that Barr's memo, the attorney general's memo, misrepresented, at least in my view, the conclusions of the Mueller report with respect to half of it, right? So sure. just to remind listeners, the first half of the Mueller uh, documents report do say that there wasn't sufficient evidence of conspiracy or collusion to bring a charge. But then in the second half of the report, in fact, there's this very complicated business where Mueller begins by saying that if we had concluded that the president didn't commit a crime, we would have said so. And we can't say that. And then he goes on to say, on the other hand, because we can't put a sitting president on trial, we're never going to say the president probably committed a crime, but read the details where sure enough, we lay out all the elements of obstruction of justice. And in a handful of instances, five or six, we actually do say that probably the president satisfied all those requirements. And none of that second half, none of it appears in Barr's summary of the principal conclusion. So didn't Barr play you? I mean, you can't really beat yourselves up for that. You trusted the attorney general to some degree. And I wonder if, if we just should have been um, more, like shown our work a little bit more to say, look, this is a four-page summary of, a, even at that time, we didn't know how long it is. So this is a four-page summary of a report that could be massive. And just to provide, I think, the viewer with a little bit more understanding of what the limitations were, but even within that four-page memo, I felt like there were things that may have gotten lost in the initial 
uh, sort of understanding of it. But then you, again, you see it switch. So the language switches from there's no evidence of conspiracy to Mueller couldn't find sufficient legal basis to charge members of the Trump campaign with uh, a conspiracy with Russia. It just, which are not the same thing at all, yeah. Which are not the same thing. But if you notice, even in digital rights from the Washington Post to us to the Times, there's a switch that happens in language uh, once mm-hmm. people take a minute to process it. So let me ask you a question that I'm actually obsessed with. And okay. this actually s- steps outside of just the, the issue of how you make your judgments. And this actually goes to substance of what we think happened. Why do you think in your heart of hearts that Bob Mueller opened the door in the way he did to have his conclusions distorted by Barr? And here's what I mean by that. There are plenty of ways that Mueller could have written the second half of his report, the obstruction of justice part, to make it much clearer to an ordinary English speaker, not a crazy lawyer like we are, that there was substantial evidence to support the conclusion that the president committed an obstruction of justice crime, which unquestionably is the substance of what he's saying. Why did he bend over so far backwards to say, we're not going to say the president committed a crime, even if we think so, because he can't defend himself? I mean, that's a very, that's a very questionable thing for him to have said. Remember, his reason, his stated reason is, it's not fair to accuse someone of a crime if they can't defend themselves in court. But of course, the reality is Donald Trump can defend himself far more effectively in and public has. and has <laughs> than he ever could have defended himself in court. There's There are limits to what you can say in court. There's no limit to what you can say on Twitter, at least not if you're Donald Trump. So what happened with the obstruction section is one of the more fascinating and confounding elements of this. And I share, I share your obsession with it, especially knowing a little bit behind the scenes of how this all sort of went down. Tell us more about that too, yeah. So at least as I understand it, and again, you have your your understanding of it is only as good as your sources and your skepticism. So as I understand it, for a long time, the special counsel's office struggled with the obstruction issue. They went back and forth with it on main justice. They were being supervised by the deputy attorney general's office. So they're in regular contact with um, main justice, as we like to call it, about these issues. They're doing research. You know, what are applicable precedents to even look at? This is obviously a unique situation, given that it's the president. They're trying to get their arms around this. At some point, they all sit down. They meaning Mueller's whole team. Not the whole team, but the the senior team. Mm-hmm. So Mueller himself, his top two deputies, James Quarles and Aaron Zebley, who's been his chief of staff essentially forever. Yeah. They sit down with the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, um, and other senior members of, of DOJ. And Mueller's team says, we can't get there on obstruction. And Barr says, okay. Are you saying that but for the Office of Legal Counsel that has provided this, you know, decades-old policy opinion, essentially, that says candidate sitting president, are you saying but for that opinion, and according, again, to Barr, Mueller says no. They ask three different times. They're told no. They ask, well, what is your reasoning for how you're going to explain the obstruction issue. And they say, well, we're still working on that. I find that amazing. That that late in the day? I mean, because Barr wasn't attorney general for very long before the report came out. It, it doesn't add up to me. And it has not adequately, I think, been 
fleshed out or, or reported on it. And I, I still am trying to dig into how do you have such an enormous breakdown in communication such that the special counsel's office thinks we can't even make a traditional judgment and everyone is looking around surprised about that. How does that happen? It's not, it's, it's not like the OLC opinion was new. Right. I mean, one thing about your reporting there is that it suggests that the rationale ultimately given by Mueller for why he wasn't going to address whether the president committed a crime wasn't really the rationale that it had been driving them in the course of the investigation. I mean, that to me is, uh, bombshell might be too strong a term, but it's very striking. I mean, it suggests that there was some other reason for them to say, no, we can't get there. And that they only later came to the conclusion that the way they should explain or justify themselves was by saying, well, we can't say the president committed a crime. Right. And the fairness issue in particular, how they get to that. To the worry that somehow it's unfair to the president to say he committed a crime. Poor, right. poor little Donald Trump. And how how that wasn't discussed. You would think that that would have been in constant consultation with DOJ throughout the two years. Or that it would just be a premise of the investigation, right? I mean, if you think that there's a legal matter, you can't say the president committed a crime, then that should affect everything you do in your investigation. And I don't really even understand how it didn't affect the conspiracy part of the investigation, other than perhaps what maybe happened is they realized, okay, we don't have enough here for conspiracy. Given that we don't have enough for conspiracy, maybe then that also affects our obstruction analysis. I don't think they make that connection, but I sometimes wonder whether that is what happened. Right. You know, there's an, another theory that they didn't want to put bar in a sort of tough spot saying we think the president committed a crime, but mm -hmm. we know we can't do anything about it. They didn't have to worry about Bill Barr. He knows how to take care of himself. <laughs> exactly. can, I, can I ask you just one more? I, I know we're sure. deep in the weeds here, but I just want to ask you one more thing about that, that big climactic meeting that you're describing. And obviously only answer it if your sources will let you. Do you know about that meeting at all from people who might be more inclined towards Mueller as opposed to people who are more on the bar side of the fence? Um, I think we now have it from multiple sources that I feel confident with the facts of it. That what, that's what happened in that, that meeting. That's what happened in the meeting. I think Amazing. from I think from the Mueller perspective, they think that, and you notice this again in the press conference that Barr does on the day the report is released. I asked mm -hmm. him about the uh, the OLC memo, and I asked him mm -hmm. about whether. I asked him about the impact of it and, you know, whether it had any effect on the analysis. And again, he goes back to the but-for formulation. Yep. And the problem with the but-for formulation is <laughs> that that wasn't how Mueller was looking at it. Right. Or at least that's not how the, the team, I think, um, formulates their explanation for it. And indeed, Barr has since dug in on that. And he has since sure. said, he actually has gone so far as to say he doesn't buy the fairness explanation. That, in no. fact, it would have been perfectly fine to say that the president committed the following acts, which constitute a crime, which is kind of, I mean, it's incredibly clever. I mean, I am never, I never cease to be impressed by Barr's cleverness, just as I never cease to be impressed by Mueller's strong belief that the year is 1965. Yes. Um, yeah. And that he doesn't have to play it by contemporary rules. But, you know, I think that Barr is correct to say that that fairness justification makes no sense. But he's ironically used that to make the president look better. Right. He says, well, they could have said it. I don't think yeah. it would have been unfair. And so therefore, the fact that they didn't say the president committed a crime essentially vindicates the president. And here is Mueller saying basically 180 degrees the opposite. And the special counsel's team, I, I think, again, thinks 
to the extent that Barr was asking, but for um, this DOJ guidance, would you have found the president committed a crime? They would say, that was true. The answer to that is no, because we didn't even we didn't even go there. We didn't even start that analysis. Right. But again, that's, but that's not even, true. Even I mean, that doesn't that's add up. Right. Right. That's literally not true. If you actually read the report, the report has a they whole go bunch through of the analysis. elements. Right. They go through every element of the crime and they say whether it was satisfied or not. I mean, so right. I, the way I've tried to talk about this with my students is, as you will recall painfully, I'm sure, you know, when we teach legal <laughs> writing in law school, we tell people it's got there, there are these different steps you have to follow. You state the issue, you state the rule, you apply the rule, and then you write a conclusion. And this had all of those things except the conclusion. Mm-hmm. There's just no conclusion there. So they did the analysis. They just don't say the the line of conclusion. And of course, the, the most curious line of the entire thing, although the fairness thing might, might I don't know, it might be a tie here, is mm-hmm. the line that if we could exonerate him, we would so state. Yes, which is very, very strange. I mean, that to me is just, what, what, what is that? <laughs> what, what is, I mean, that's what, what makes that? people hate lawyers. That's why people hate lawyers. Because <laughs> only a lawyer could have thought of that sentence, right? We're not exonerating you. And if we could exonerate you, we would exonerate you. But we're also not not exonerating you. I mean, the only lawyers talk that way. No human being has ever talked that way before coming through the gates of a law school. But for the average, I think for the average layperson, and certainly for our viewers, that is catnip. Because politically, it's saying, I can't tell you whether he committed a crime or not. Laura, you're from a political background. You're, you're from a political family. And you, you know D.C. very, very well. And you've seen it in different eras now, in two very different eras. Do you think that the way the way we think about politics and the fights that we have in in Washington and beyond have really changed in the Trump era compared to the Obama era? Or do you think it's it's actually deceptive to think of them as different, that we were already so profoundly partisan in the in the Obama era that, you know, that this is just a natural evolution? You know, that's a great question. I don't I don't know that it has changed. I certainly think that the media's sort of role in this dance has changed. And I was sort of always advised when I first took this job and I've seen it throughout is, you know, you never want to become the story. We're supposed to be covering the news. And because of, for, for better or worse, how things have gone over the last two and a half years, the media has become so much part of the narrative. And because of Trump, you know, calling on 50 million people on his Twitter feed uh, to essentially boycott an entire network. Which happens to be your network. <laughs> it's, but it's I mean, a, what you're describing is not that, I mean, the media, you know, CNN doesn't want to be part of the story necessarily, or maybe didn't want to, at least at the beginning. And Donald Trump just didn't allow that option. Right. Right. He made, he knew very effectively that he could make the media part of the story. And at some level, the media does love that. Sure. But the, what, what I, what I, what I've noticed and what I struggle with is that, of course, everything in D.C. is always partisan, but the media ends up getting accused of being partisan because it's doing its job and it's asking questions and somehow just even raising the question is seen as taking a side sometimes or even just a fact-checking exercise is seen as sort of adversarial. Is there any going back? <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned earlier something was you, you mentioned early, you know, the, the claim of the, the Mueller report, they couldn't exonerate the president is catnip for your viewers. That's right. It's catnip for CNN's viewers. It's not catnip for Fox viewers. 
right? We recognize, and you guys recognize as part of your daily lives that there are, there are different viewers for these, for these networks. So is there any, I mean, is there any return? I mean, to me, it reminds me of, you know, the early 1800s when newspapers were starting to rise up in the United States, the first national newspapers were coming into existence and they were completely partisan. There was a Federalist newspaper and a Republican newspaper. And I sort of feel that we're there again now. Do, do you see a path back to neutrality or objectivity for the media? In terms of the partisanship, I think that I think that it has the possibility to change. And I certainly think that the media right now is trying its darndest to hold people account and figure out how to do that in a way that does not come across as that we have a our thumb on the scale either way. I think the problem is that do people believe us when we when we say that, right? Do do viewers trust it? Especially if politicians are saying otherwise. If politicians are are, you know, convincingly making an argument that actually, no, we're just part of this machine and we're just, um, you know, in the pocket of the DNC or the RNC or it is if we're just, you know, pawns to be used in this. If they make that argument effectively and they make an argument about fake news all day long and people hear a drumbeat of that, I do worry that, you know, some of that gets through. But I think we just have to keep doing our jobs and hope that (laughs) at some point... (laughs) people will be able to cut through some of the noise, but I don't think that we've figured out a perfect solution for it yet. I mean, in a way, you're just like, you're like the Department of Justice that, that you cover. They, they've also experienced the president saying again and again and again and again, both before and he, he went into office and since then, that they're biased, that they're not objective, that they're not neutral. And he's convinced, I think, a lot of people that prosecution and investigation are politicized, mm-hmm. even though many people inside that world thought otherwise and ditto for news. So I guess that you and the people that you're covering are going to have a, a joint challenge going forward. <laughs> right. And I, th- and I think that there has been a fair, um, you know, criticism by some that DOJ is playing by an old set of rules or at least Mueller was playing by an old set of rules and Trump sort of, you know, uh, has reinvented the, the wheel. But I don't I don't know what the alternative is for the media. Right. I don't I don't know that that we have um, an alternative other than to keep doing what we're doing and just try to keep doing it better and and be as accurate as possible. You know, all all we can do is just keep moving forward. Laura, I feel like you took us through the the full experience that you've had over the last (laughs) two and a half years. (laughs) That's not over yet. From day one and the, uh, the shock of the new all the way to prime time day after day after day covering the most pressing and exciting story we have. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Talking to Laura about the process of covering the Department of Justice in this crazy time of Trump and Mueller and Barr, I'm left with partly a sense of gratitude. Gratitude that there are reporters out there who have the legal chops to analyze the issues and the instincts to make the story come to life. We also are really trying to understand the internal motivations of people who don't want us to know their internal motivations, and that requires strong journalism. Going forward, we're going to have to avoid the kind of rush to judgment that the media has found itself pulled into, and which, according to Laura, was in fact a real factor in their reporting in the aftermath of the summaries of the Mueller report produced by Attorney General Barr. When Bob Mueller testifies in front of Congress, we're going to have an instinct to run right out and say exactly that we know all of the relevant parts of his thinking. We won't, 
We need to take a deep breath. We need to get behind the stories. We need to do the deeper reporting. And then from that deeper reporting, we have to go to a more profound analysis, one that locates the problems of our current historical moment against the backdrop of the separation of powers and the investigation of a sitting president of the United States for potential crimes, including obstruction of justice. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. <laughs>